0: So this may be a dumb question, so I, I apologize, but, but when you're transporting someone's heart in the car with you, how, how does that work exactly? I kid you not, he was belted into the passenger seat, and so we had
1: many long conversations and
0: prayers as we traveled. That's Peter Sonsky. Peter works for the Knights of Columbus.
1: I work at the Knights of Columbus
0: Museum
1: in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. I was privileged to travel with the heart of John Vianney across the United States. In fact, I traveled to 35 different states and the District of Columbia, bringing the heart of a priest to the faithful throughout the country.
0: This relic of a French saint traveled 7,500 miles across the United States. Maybe the heart even stopped in your hometown. I saw it myself when it stopped here in Denver at the Cathedral Basilica.
1: It was received very favorably at every stop. Numbers surpassed uh, a quarter of a million people. I think it was close to 275 or 280,000 people that prayed with uh, the heart of John Vianney.
0: So why are we talking about St. John Vianney's heart, other than the fact that it's pretty cool? We're talking about St. John Vianney because he had a pretty amazing devotion to one of the seven sacraments in particular, And it was his devotion to this sacrament that made it possible for thousands of people in 19th century France to return to mass. John Vianney
1: is renowned for having spent countless hours in the confessional. It's said that at times he spent up to 18 hours in the confessional.
0: The sacrament of confession. Maybe you know it as penance or reconciliation. This week, we're going to delve into the mysterious world of confession. We'll answer some common questions or misconceptions about it, and then we'll examine what can happen when the government tries to force priests to reveal what they've heard in the confessional. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. My name is Jonah McKeown, and I'll be your host this week. Stay tuned. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom.
2: CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom.
0: Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Before we get into our first segment, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about St. John Vianney. We produce this podcast out of our office in Denver, and our seminary here is named for St. John Vianney. I spoke with Father Gary Sellin, a professor at the seminary who had just a ton of great things to say about not only John Vianney, but confession in general. You'll hear more from him in our second segment. I teach the sacrament of penance, and anointing
3: the sacraments of healing.
0: Saint John Vianney was born in 1786 in France. After he became a priest in 1815, he was sent to a rural village called Ars, a village with a struggling parish and by all accounts a pretty dismal participation in the faith. This wasn't long after the French Revolution, so the country and the church were kind of in turmoil.
3: He first
0: spent hours
3: on his knees before the tabernacle because he had himself had to become a man of deep prayer. And then he started catechizing the people. And as he's catechizing the people, both in sermons and also in daily catechesis in the church, he then started to speak about sin. John Vanney would dedicate himself to prayer. And then through that prayer, strong preaching, you know, courageous preaching, but compassionate preaching, would then draw people to the confessional, they would be absolved of their sins. Sometimes they'd be, these uh, people would be years in mortal sin. Then they would come back to God's grace and then come back to the Mass, receiving the Holy Eucharist in the state of grace. So that's the virtuous circle. So he found the confessional as a means of sanctification for drawing people to a, a beautiful encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist. Because even confession itself is ordered towards the Mass. The town didn't receive him well. He was
1: he was not welcome when he got there. But he was very devout, very prayerful, and and won them
0: over. This is Peter from the Knights of Columbus again.
1: One of the things that he would do was make himself available in the sacrament of confession, and people would come not just from his village, but from throughout France and ultimately ultimately from throughout Europe. Uh, It was said that during his lifetime, there were people that were waiting up to a week to have uh, John Vianney hear their confession.
0: It's worth noting that St. John Vianney is the patron saint of parish priests.
3: Parish priests, today cannot, you know, just because of the complexity of the parish, most probably couldn't spend up to 18 hours a day. But I do tell the men, do not be content with 45 minutes on a Saturday afternoon. I you know, have early morning confessions for the working dads. Uh, have mid-afternoon confessions, say for like the moms who pick up their children at school. Make yourself available even before mass on Sunday. And you know, because as the field of dreams, we know from that movie, if you build it, they will come. Well, if you if you if you're in the confessional, if you're available, the people will come.
0: When John Vianney died and was beatified, his entire incorrupt body was made available for pilgrims to venerate at the church where he served as a priest, which is now a shrine. Peter said he witnessed the heart of John Vianney continuing to encourage people to seek God's mercy and confession. The churches
1: that I was in were providing confessors so that the Sacrament of Reconciliation was available and people were taking advantage of it. There were lines of people waiting to venerate the heart of John Bionni, but there were also lines waiting to, uh, to go to confession.
0: As I alluded to before, I think it's pretty safe to say that if you're watching a movie or TV show that features a Catholic character, it's almost certain that at some point we'll see him or her in the confessional box. Scenes like this may provide a turning point for the character or sometimes even comic relief. But due in part to portrayals like this in the media, there are a lot of misconceptions about confession floating around. CNA interns Bea Quasi and Michelle McDaniel dug into some common questions about confession and bring us this next segment.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Mary Farrow. I'm a reporter at Catholic News Agency, and I am joined today by our two summer interns, Michelle and Bea, and it's been awesome to have them here in the office, and they've been getting all kinds of experience, and we wanted to have them uh, get a lot of podcast experience as well. So for this episode, they have interviewed four different priests all about confession. So, interns, who were the priests that you found to talk to you about confession? I called up my friend, Father Kyle Sladek from the Diocese of Green Bay,
5: and Father Dan Fulwachsne, I think that's how you pronounce it in Polish, but he's um, one of the Catholic Twitter priests. Um, He's at Father Rocket Dan. I also talked to Father James, who's the rector of Notre Dame in New Orleans. Um, And we also brought back Father Gary, who you heard earlier in the podcast.
4: What was one of the most interesting things that they told you or something that surprised you about uh, their answers to your questions about confession?
5: So something I always wondered going to confession was how much explanation do I need to give with a sin? Um, What's too much detail, what's too little? What they all said um, was that we have to be specific about the sin itself and whether or not it's habitual or isolated.
1: The role of the priest isn't to get into specifics for his own purpose, it's to help the penitent understand the nature of the sin, the frequency of the sin, so that they can embrace a life of conversion, a life of purity, by moving away from the sins that were committed.
4: I think, yeah, it's an important line to walk of like, you're not trying to be explicit and divulge like all of these unnecessary details, but you do need to help the priest understand what's going on and where you're at.
5: One of the questions that I asked was, what if you think you only have venial sins? Should you still go to confession?
4: So
6: confession is really specifically for mortal sins, because venial sins are forgiven just through reception of the Eucharist. It's forgiven through the act of contrition that happens at the beginning of mass, that those are not things that would necessarily make us go to confession. But I also have heard the advice that even if it's only venial sins, go to confession anyway.
4: Yeah, that's really interesting. Did any of the priests give like an approximation of like, you should still be going X amount of time? Did any of them say that?
5: One of them told us that um, you should be going about once a year um, at the very least. That way you can receive every Easter, Preferably about once a month, although the more you go, the better.
3: Once we rebuild we up the habit of confession, it becomes a joyful
5: experience, actually. Does anyone know how often the Pope or someone big like that goes to confession?
4: I've heard daily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it depends on the Pope. I think John Paul II went daily. I don't know about Francis. Okay.
5: I've also but... been told, though, not to go daily because it leads to scrupulosity, oh, which yeah. was a big thing that the priest talked to us about.
1: The sacrament is not meant for scrupulosity. It's not an investigation, it's not an interrogation.
4: Which of these questions were like the most burning questions for you personally? Like, I think we all have these moments, even as like, I'm a cradle Catholic. I've been going to catechism since I was young. I've been teaching catechism and I still have those moments before going to confession where I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? I'm scared. Is he going to remember? Yeah. Were there any of those like freak out questions on here that were especially personal to you?
5: One of mine was definitely um, about the seal of confession, which, as we know, is a bit relevant right now um, with what's going on in the news and what you'll hear later on in the podcast. So are there exemptions to the seal of confession? I know he's not going to go to a cocktail party and tell other priests about my sins, but can he tell the police? What if they ask specifically? And we learned that he definitely can't, and he would actually be excommunicated if he were to do this. The question salient to me as of late was, do priests recognize their voices? Because last week I went to confession and mass for, to celebrate my 20th baptism anniversary. And the next day, I was invited to this hiking trip, but the same priest who celebrated mass and heard my confession was also on the same hiking trip. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, what if he recognizes my voice?
7: I tend to not, no. I mean, in the confessionals of my churches, people have the option of going face-to-face or behind the screen. Uh, folks go behind the screen. I generally tend not to recognize voices. Uh, even if I did recognize a voice, I wouldn't you know, inquire uh, about who it is or anything.
4: Yeah, I think that makes sense. They're here. I mean, a priest, you just have to remember, he hears so many confessions through the course of their priesthood that it just becomes like super routine and that kind of thing. And so you also asked in your questions, what if the priest is distracted?
7: The grace of the sacraments is still provided, even if the priest is distracted. Uh, the sacraments still function independent of the psychological state or emotional Aid or focus
5: level of the Remember, the absolution isn't coming from the priest himself. So even if there is a distraction or he's not fully present to you emotionally, Christ is still going to be using that channel to give you the absolution that you're asking for.
4: All right. Well, thanks so much, ladies. Thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for all your hard work talking to all those priests and and asking the questions we all want to know about confession.
5: Thanks for having us. It was an honor. Thank you.
0: Stay tuned.
8: Hello, this is Michelle LaRosa. I'm the deputy editor-in-chief at CNA. If you've been listening to our podcast, you know that I am not a big fan of fish sandwiches, with the exception of Arby's. Well, here's another fun fact about me. I am actually not a huge fan of podcasts, with the exception of CNA Newsroom. Normally, I just listen to country music almost exclusively, but I make an exception every Friday morning to listen to the latest episode of CNA Newsroom. It's entertaining, it's informative, it's a great way to stay up-to-date on the latest Catholic news. I subscribe on Apple Podcasts so I never miss an episode or a bonus episode. And you can do the same on any podcast platform, Stitcher, Spotify. Just search for CNA Newsroom and subscribe today. And if you like the podcast, leave us a rating and a review. That will help other people find it too.
0: Welcome back to CNA Newsroom, where we bring you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. So, we've talked a lot about the importance of the seal of confession, and why priests are not allowed to break it. Throughout the centuries, some priests have even gone to their deaths rather than reveal what they heard from a penitent. For our last segment, our executive producer, Kate Vike brings us the story of what happened when California's government recently tried to pass a law to force priests to break the seal of confession. The law didn't pass, but it's still a fascinating story. Here's Kate.
2: Back in February, in California, Senator Jerry Hill introduced Bill 360. He said the bill would clarify and strengthen reporting requirements for cases of child abuse and neglect. Which is a goal that we vehemently share. This is Kathleen Domingo. I'm the senior
9: director for the Office of Life, Justice, and Peace and the director for government relations for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles.
2: California already has a law regulating the reporting of child abuse, but that law includes an exemption for the sacrament of confession. And Senator Hill recommended the state of California strip that exemption from the law, forcing priests to violate the seal of confession, to report to law enforcement any suspicion of child abuse or neglect from the confessional. We hoped
9: that um, it would be a bill that would kind of go away. We, We thought, well, this is ridiculous. It's clearly
2: a First Amendment violation. But Bill 360 didn't go away. It was modified in May to apply only to the sacramental confessions of other priests or diocesan co-workers. And then, California Senate passed Bill 360 by an overwhelming majority, 30 to 4.
9: Honestly, I think it took us a little bit by surprise that it would have so much support. Again, as I said, this is a clear First Amendment violation. We sort of thought that Talking about it from that perspective was enough for legislators to say, well, there's no reason to, to support this bill. But it passed through the California Senate 30 to 4. I mean, this is an amazing landslide, right? And and that really, I think, made us sit up and notice and say, whoa, hold
2: on a second.
6: It was very clear there was a lot of misunderstanding with regards to this whole issue, uh, the nature of confession.
2: This is Father Pius Petrick. He's a Dominican priest and chair of pastoral studies at St. Patrick's Seminary and University in California.
6: You know, you had one person, you know, a California state senator during the committee meeting state at one point, you know, a, a child abusers are confessing every day to, to priests and getting away with it. I mean, there's no evidence for this at all. I mean, it's a nonsense statement. They have this bizarre view of confession, fostered, I think, by movies, and, and maybe some some Protestant caricatures of the, of the sacrament. This idea, and this is this is kind of the idea you, you know you see in the movies, you know, the mafia member who's just whacked three people goes to the confession formalistically confesses and then goes off and kills a few more, uh, as if we somehow think that that's a valid confession. It's a recitation of sins with sorrow for them and with a firm purpose of amendment and those things that cause harm, of course one is obligated to do restitution for the damage, and that would include anybody who committed child abuse. So any priest who's counseling someone who's abused someone in the confessional, the abuse has to include the reminder to that person that they have to make restitution for the harm that they've caused.
2: Senator Hill suggested the church is using the sacrament of confession to cover up clergy abuse. Is there any world in which this could be true? I called up Dr. Thomas Plant, who's a psychologist in California. He's evaluated and treated priest abusers and their victims. He's helped with psychological screenings for candidates to religious life. And over the last 31 years, he's published several books on clergy sex abuse. So I asked Plant about this allegation. I asked him if priests are using the sacrament of confession to cover up abuse by their brother priests.
7: No, absolutely not.
2: And confession has been a really, really good thing in Plant's professional experience. Priests use
7: the confessional also as a way to help steer people in the right direction. And they will steer people towards psychologists or doctors or whoever. And when people have the full trust of their priest, they're more likely to go and do what they say.
2: Plant gave me the example of a Silicon Valley executive who was involved with sex workers during his business travels. He also struggled with an addiction to pornography. So he went to confession, talked with a priest, and the priest encouraged him to visit with Dr. Plant, who was able to treat him successfully.
7: That just wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have gone for help unless he felt like he could have the full trust of his priest in confession to just lay it out there. And that's why it's so important to keep that seal completely airtight.
2: Plant also told me many people have a distorted view of the rate of clerical sex abuse today.
7: People think of this as a current problem rather than a historical problem. They just don't look at the data. We always have to be vigilant, of course, but we've got policies, procedures, best practices in place now where we've gone from over 600 fresh cases a year in the 70s to an average of one case per year.
6: The evidence of the last, at least within the American church, the evidence of the last almost 20 years shows that no institution in the United States discloses more or is more vigilant against child abuse than the Catholic church. No public school, no government entity, no other private entity. No one has done more than the Catholic Church of America uh, to uncover what it's done in the past and to move forward in protecting children. The terrible days of the 70s and 80s are largely over. As as one report I read said, in California public schools, for example, five million children are abused every year, every year. The John Jay Report for 2017 or 18, said in this Catholic Church, seven children were abused in the whole of the United States. This is not where the problem is.
7: We need to use the data to make informed, smart choices. And uh, we let hysteria get in the way and emotion get in the way. You know, that that never works out well.
2: And at the end of the day...
6: Even if they pass this law, no priest is going to honor it. No priest will violate the seal of the confession that I know of. Um, I know priests along the theological spectrum, but every priest that I know holds very dear the seal of the confession. And the thought that that might be uh, uh, ebbed away at by the state, I think, has really galvanized Catholics in California and other parts of the country.
2: The Archdiocese of Los Angeles, for its part, mobilized quickly against Bill 360, launching social media campaigns and broadcasting public service announcements on Catholic radio stations. The Archdiocese encouraged its Catholics to email lawmakers. Kathleen told me she wasn't quite sure how Catholics would respond to these calls to help protect the sacrament of confession.
9: It was a bit of a a question. How how will people respond to this? Because I think we also have to recognize that this is a moment in the church when there is a lot of frustration, there's even some anger.
2: But California lawmakers received more than 17,000 emails from Catholics within the Archdiocese of Los Angeles alone. Kathleen's office printed pre-written letters to members of the California Assembly, and they distributed these letters in parishes across the archdiocese. We ended up delivering 140,000 letters
9: to Sacramento, to the Capitol. We made quite a ruckus up there. We, we actually hired a Penske truck and drove up the state of California to drop these boxes of letters.
6: So many people took the time to write into the legislature, to the assembly in California, and that made a huge difference. Um, it's one thing to, to see professional lobbyists come at you and tell you this is a bad idea. It's not to have, you know, 100,000 or 200,000 letters dumped at your doorstep from voters saying, this is a terrible idea. And I think all those letters from all those people who wrote in made a huge difference.
2: And the voices of California Catholics were heard. The California Assembly's Public Safety Committee was scheduled to debate Bill 360 on Tuesday. And on Monday night, the night before the debate, Senator Hill withdrew Bill 360 from the agenda. Father Pius was scheduled to testify on the bill. He heard the news of its withdrawal.
6: When my plane landed in Sacramento, I think the sponsors of the bill on the California Senate side underestimated what Catholics believe about this and underestimated the strength of opposition that they saw from the Catholic faithful in California and really from lots of different places.
2: Kathleen told me she was relieved when the bill was withdrawn in California, but she said she's still on guard, and it seems like she has really good reason to be. Kathleen told me Senator Hill has given strong indication that he will bring the bill back next year. I want Catholics to understand that our voices
9: should not be muted in the public square. That this is a perfect example of an opportunity where when we unite around a common goal and when we use our voice for something positive in the public square, we can actually make a significant impact. So often, I think Catholics wring our hands and we can get cynical, I think pretty easily about politics. Um, We don't really fit in either of the major parties. Um, A lot of our social issues just are not being carried by the voices that we would hope in a way that we would hope for, and it can be very disheartening. But I think this has shown us in a particular way that when we come together, when we put our faith first, that we can really make change in the culture for good.
2: For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Bike.
0: You've been listening to another episode of CNA Newsroom. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. Don't worry, J.D. will be back next week. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. I'm also a producer of the show. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. No matter where you may be listening, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, and go to confession. See you next week.